faithfulness of old. We know that from the garden to Egypt to the promised land, through the exile, through the days of Jesus walking on this earth to the day of Pentecost, which many churches celebrate today, to the birth of your church at Pentecost, to the growth of your church through the book of Acts, to the spread of your church through all of history, to the fact that the gates of hell have not yet prevailed against the church and will never prevail against the church, you have been faithful. And we gather together to declare your faithfulness. We gather together because we want to be a faithful people, and we believe that we will only be faithful to the extent that we are depending upon your word, consuming your word as if it were our life, for it is. And so we ask you to help us do that this morning. Father, we seek to come to you with clean hands and with pure hearts. We ask your spirit to work in our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It's 11 p.m. You're about to go to bed, but you hear something in the kitchen. What is it? You wonder. It's very quiet, but it is definitely a sound. So you make your way to the other side of the house. What do you know, you say? It's coming from the refrigerator. You open the fridge, and you hear it again. A still, soft voice coming from a box of cheesecake. It's calling your name, Aaron, Aaron. You take it out of the box and take one little bite. You're convinced that you've never tasted anything so good. And because you're a Christian and you know the Bible, you believe it would be a sin not to eat more of what God so graciously gifted to you. The bite turns into a sliver. The sliver turns into a slice. And before you know it, that cheesecake has been devastated. Your diet has been decimated. And an innocent late-night snack has left you holding your stomach in pain. This is a parable we can all relate to. One bite isn't enough. We are never fully satisfied. We go on vacation only to wish that it were longer. We get a job only to wish it paid more. We settle down in one part of the country only to wish we were closer to home or further from home. Like Tolstoy's pay home, we want more land. And no one had more money in his day than the Standard Oil founder, John D. Rockefeller. When asked how much money is enough, he replied, just a little bit more. Now, the wonderful thing about Jesus, there are many wonderful things about Jesus. One of the wonderful things about Jesus is he understands this craving. He knows that we were made this way. We were made to crave, to hunger. So that the problem is not our appetite. You know, the appetite is a gift from God. No, the problem is what we eat. If we fill up on the wrong things, we'll be left holding our stomach in pain. And so no one put it better than Jesus. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? Jesus offers us something better. You know, in John chapter 4, Jesus walks up to a lonely woman drawing water from a deep well, and he says to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty forever, never thirst again. One drink, and you will be totally and wonderfully filled. Your craving will be forever satisfied. As Jesus puts it in our passage today, your hearts will rejoice, and no one can take your joy from you. The Westminster Shorter Catechism says the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And that's what I want to talk to you about today. Our passage is John chapter 16, verses 16 to 24. 
You'll, you, you'll find it on page 902 of your Pew Bible. We are in what is commonly referred to as Jesus' farewell discourse. It's the final words that he has for his disciples before his death. In chapters 14 to 16 of the book of John, Jesus is preparing his disciples for his departure. But as we will see again in our passage, they just don't get it. The disciples are shell-shocked. Their master is going to leave them. Haters are going to come. John chapter 15, there's going to be people who, who hate them and persecute them. They're going to be under attack. And so now, in their moment of weakness, right, because they're mourning Jesus is going, haters are coming, they're mourning all of that. In their moment of weakness, Jesus speaks an amazing word of comfort to them. And he does that in John 16, 16 to 24. I want to ask three questions of our text. Now, the goal of the first two is to help us understand the passage. I cannot promise that there won't be application in these first two points, okay? Don't hold me to that. But I just want you to know the goal is to understand the passage. And then the third point, the third question, is really seeking to apply the passage. All right, so here's the first question. What does Jesus promise? What does he promise? Look at verse 16. A little while, and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while, and you will see me. So some of the disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us? A little while, and you will not see me. And again, a little while, and you will see me. And because I am going to the Father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. Now, what does Jesus promise? Well, verse 16, you see the promise. Jesus promises that he's going to leave them by dying on the cross, and he's going to return to them by rising from the dead. This is the promise of the gospel. Now, I stated it a little bit differently than verse 16 states it because I've read John 17 through 21. I know the end of the story. Jesus doesn't tell them all that. They're a little bit confused. We know the whole story, and so we can say that the promise is really the gospel. Jesus is going to leave them by dying on the cross. He's going to come to them by being raised from the dead. But again, the disciples don't know that. They don't really know what's next. They're confused. Jesus often spoke about his death and resurrection, yes, but he rarely spoke about it directly. In the Gospel of John, John seems to draw our attention to all the times Jesus spoke about his death and resurrection indirectly. I think one of the great examples is in John chapter 12, verses 23 and 24, where Jesus says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Now, we know that Jesus is talking about his death and resurrection. And you go on and you read in John 12, you know that he's also talking about the sense in which to be a follower of Jesus is to die to your sin and to rise from the dead and produce, you know, fruit. But Jesus here is talking about his own death. He's that grain. He's saying to them, look, I've got to die. And look, you should want me to die because unless I die, I can't be raised again and bring everlasting life to the whole world. We get it. We've got the whole story. They didn't get it. And Jesus, by the way, is absolutely aware that they are confused. Look at verse 19. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, is this what you're asking yourselves? What I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me again. And again, a little while and you will see me. So Jesus knows that they're confused. Now, why didn't Jesus just use plain words to describe his death and resurrection? Why not simply say, I'm about to be arrested. The soldiers are going to come and take me away because I'm going to be turned over to Pilate by my Jewish family who are claiming that I'm a blasphemer. I'm going to be arrested. I'm going to be taken to the cross. On that cross, I'm going to suffer and I'm going to die for you so that you can have everlasting life, so I can take the sins that you should be punished for on myself, and then I'm going to rise from the dead just to show you that everything I told you is true and to show you that I can conquer sin and death. So just, you know, just buckle up, hang on, that's what I'm going to do. Why doesn't Jesus just come and tell them that? Why not simply say it that way? Well, the answer is simple. 
they were not ready to understand the promise of the gospel. They weren't ready to understand the promise of the gospel. Corey Tenboom is the, uh, the Dutch Christian who, when she was a little girl, her whole family uh, protected, hid Jews in Amsterdam during World War II. In her book, The Hiding Place, she remembers asking her dad a hard question. Her dad, if you've read the book, you might know her dad was a watchmaker. She asks her, she asks her dad a very difficult question. Her dad happens to be next to his suitcase of tools and watch making and watch repairing supplies. And as you can imagine, it was a very, a very heavy, a very heavy suitcase. Well, she asks her dad this very difficult question. And her dad points to the suitcase and said something like, you know, Corey, it would be cruel of me to ask you to pick up this suitcase. You're not ready for the weight of it. And then he said, it's the same way, Corey, with knowledge. Some knowledge is too heavy for children. When you are older and stronger, you can bear it. For now, you must trust me to carry it for you. Well, I think that's good counsel just to dads and moms who are thinking about how do you answer some of the hard questions your children may have for you. Uh, some wisdom there from Corey's dad. But in any event, Jesus promised the disciples the gospels, the gospel. But this knowledge of the gospel was too heavy for them to pick up. Jesus would have to carry the weight of the gospel alone. They would have to wait for the promised Holy Spirit to strengthen them so that they would finally be guided into all truth and understand what Jesus was telling them in verse 16 and elsewhere throughout his ministry. Now, brothers and sisters, we still need the Holy Spirit to embrace the promise of the gospel. With, without the Holy Spirit, we can understand the nuts and bolts of the gospel Right? You don't need to be a Christian to understand the ABCs of the gospel of a Savior who died and rose again. But without the Holy Spirit, you can't understand the gospel in a way that it changes you. Paul put it this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. No one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. In other words, without the spirit of God, we won't be strong enough to truly comprehend, to truly understand, to embrace the promise of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, if you're a Christian, you should be very thankful for the work of the Spirit in your life. Praise God, the Spirit has opened your eyes to the gospel. It's because of Him that you understand gospel truth. I think that's what Jesus has been telling His disciples already in chapter 16. Without the Spirit's work, you will be blind to truth, deaf to the voice of God. As a church, we are dependent upon God's Spirit for everything. Unless the Spirit is blowing in our midst, we will fail. Psalm 127.1, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. So if you're a member of Mount Vernon, pray that the Lord would build this house. Pray that the Spirit would move in our midst. We can teach and evangelize and do Bible study and gather together. But unless the Spirit of God is moving, we will not grow. We will wither away on the vine. We need God's Spirit. So the promise in our passage is the gospel, the atoning death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's the gospel. But the amazing reminder in this section is that without the Holy Spirit, we will be just like those disciples. Lord, what's a little while? What's going on? Going back, what do you mean we need the Spirit? to open our eyes. All right, second, what does the promise produce? What does the promise produce? Look at verse 20. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep 
and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. The absence of Jesus says Jesus brings sorrow. When the cross takes him away, verse 20, they will weep and lament. Now, they're already sorrowful now, just knowing that he's going to go. But Jesus is saying that sorrow is going to be intensified into weeping and lamentation. They will be sorrowful. Now, Jesus also says that, that many will cheer at his death, right? They're going to think that they've done Israel a favor by getting rid of this rabble rouser who claims to be the king of Israel. Now, they're going to be thrilled, but the disciples won't cheer. No, they won't stand by Jesus in his death, right? Jesus was alone. The disciples wouldn't stand by him. They abandoned him, but they weren't celebrating his death either. They will weep and lament and be full of sorrow. Now, of course, the, the main point here, how can you read this without knowing that the main point is that the sorrow will be temporary, right? The promise doesn't produce sorrow. It produces joy. Verse 20, your sorrow will turn into joy. And look again at verse 21. I've never given birth, but I have, uh, I take it by the words of Jesus, who is God, and the experience of my wife, who has given birth, that this, in fact, is true. Just as a mother's sorrow or pain in labor is replaced by joy at childbirth, so the disciples' sorrow and, and pain at Jesus' death will be replaced by joy at his resurrection. And so that's why I say the gospel promise produces joy. The disciples are overwhelmed by the thought that Jesus is leaving. They will be more overwhelmed and heartbroken when he's actually arrested and killed and, and put into the tomb, sorrow will come, but their mourning will turn into dancing. Joy will arise in their heart. Now, it makes me want to sing, you turned my mourning into dancing again. Anybody ever sing that? Yeah, not so much. <laughs> All right. It's a good, it's a, it's a good song. All right, what can we say about this joy? It is a cross-centered joy. I want you to see that. Look at verse 23. It is a cross-centered joy. It is a joy dependent upon the cross work of Jesus for our experience and appropriation. Verse 23, in that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive that your joy may be full. Now, Jesus tells them that a day is coming. A day is coming, Jesus says, where they will not be able to sit around and have conversations with Jesus. You know, you will not be able to ask me questions. I'm going away. And so Jesus says in verse 23, in that day, you will ask nothing of me. Right? I think he's just talking about, I'm going to be gone, and I'm not going to be with you face to face. You're not going to be able to talk to me that way. But he says, but take heart. When Jesus is gone, they can go straight to the Father with their request. Do you see that? When that day comes and they can't ask Jesus, what can they do? Whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Now, we, we read these verses and think, you know, why is he sitting here talking about prayer um, a lot of commentators take this as an aside in the text. Um, we're just racking our brain going, you know, does this mean if I ask for a new house, I can get a new house? Does this mean if I ask God to, you know, heal me, he's going to heal me? Well, that, that's not the point. The point is access to the Father. 
The point is, you know, before, you know, you and I were talking, but God's wrath, the Father's wrath was against you. You did not have access to the Father. But when I go away, when I'm raised from the dead, also, you're going to have direct access to God the Father. And how does this happen? It's through the work of the cross. It is very hard to get a meeting with the President of the United States. He is an important and a popular man. Last week, President Obama uh, opened up a new Twitter account, and he broke the world record for the fastest, uh, the, the fastest pace to reach 100, a million followers. Uh, remarkable. He is a popular man. When you're the president, everybody wants a piece of you. But do you know that there is a person who never needs to ask the president for an appointment? And it's this child. You know, you go over presidential history and you just love to see the pictures of, of toddlers, you know, running to the Oval Office and jumping into their daddy's lap, right? They have access to the father. They don't have security clearance, but they have access to their father. They're the president's child. We'll look again at verses 23 and 24. When Jesus leaves, they can go to the father in the name of Jesus and they can ask anything. How is that possible? Because Jesus made a way through the cross. At Calvary, Jesus absorbed the wrath of God. And, and at Calvary, Jesus kept that wrath for himself and spared us. Because of Jesus' death and resurrection, we have now been adopted into God's family so that there's no barrier between God and us. That's what's going on in 23 and 24. There's now no barrier. You know, Jesus doesn't talk about the cross there because it was too heavy for them to understand. But eventually, they're going to get it. So we now, with these disciples, have all the benefits of a son or a daughter of God. Because of the cross, God will never turn us away, never. And that's why I say it's a cross-centered joy. It's a joy made possible by the cross of Christ. It's a deep joy. It is a deep joy. I love how verse 24 ends, that your joy may be full. Jesus isn't playing around. The joy of Christ isn't like a 10-minute shower in the midst of a 10-year drought. That's, that's not what Christian joy is like at all. That kind of joy, that 10-minute that shower in the midst of a 10-year drought, that kind of joy feels good for a moment, but it doesn't do anything. Right? It, isn't, it isn't a full joy. It's a shallow joy, which means it isn't joy at all. Jesus is talking about a joy that is full, a joy that is deep. The joy that Jesus is talking about is like a well that has tapped into a reservoir that is so big, it can soak a million farms for a million years, right? Times a million. That's the joy that Jesus is talking about. John 4, 14. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to limited life welling up to a little bit of life. No, welling up to eternal life. It is a deep joy. It's a cross-centered joy. It's a deep joy. It is an everlasting joy. Verse 22, no one will take your joy from you. I just want to ask, what do you have that you cannot lose? Right, your home, think again. Your health, no your family, your job. Look, all these things can be taken away from you. But your joy in the Lord, no one can take that away from you. No one. We are not talking about the joy that you have after spiritual high. You know, that kind of joy goes away when you come down from the mountain and face the trials of the world. Now, Jesus promises a joy that will never go away. He's talking about being glad in Christ, delighting in the Lord forever. It's what, it's what David prayed in Psalm 1611. You make known to me the path of life in your presence, right? In, the, in, the, in your presence, in the presence of the Father, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. It's an everlasting joy. And it is a God-given joy as well. It's, it's a God-given joy. Look again at verse 22. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts 
will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. Now, does anything strike you as strange about that verse 22? Does anything strike you as odd? Is he wanting me to answer out loud? I know he's not wanting me to answer out loud, but he asked twice, I wonder. Right, nod your head if anything strikes you as odd about that verse. Look at verse 16. Again, a little while, and you will see me. Verse 22. I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice. Do you see the difference? Do you see the difference? Yeah, right, right. Verse 16, verse 16, you will see me. Verse 22, I will see you. Why the change? Jesus wants them to understand that he will come after them. He's going to come after them. Like Peter may deny Jesus three times, but Jesus will not deny Peter. Jesus is going to come after Peter. Jesus is going to look for Peter. Jesus is going to find Peter. Salvation is of the Lord. John 1.13, we are born again, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. The joy we have in the Lord is not because we first saw the Lord, but because he first saw us. I will see you. The joy we have in the Lord is not because we first loved God, but because he first loved us. Now, I have not defined joy thus far. I've said a lot of things about joy. Let me give you uh, a definition of joy. Joy is the wonderful conviction, the wonderful conviction that God has graciously saved you through the cross of Christ. Joy is the wonderful conviction that God has graciously saved you through the cross of Christ. Now, I call it a conviction because it is clearly the work of the Spirit in us. I don't think it's a, a coincidence that Jesus enters this conversation of joy after he says the Holy Spirit is going to guide them into all truth. After he says the Spirit will come and convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. After Jesus says, I will see you. Joy is a wonderful conviction, a work of the Holy Spirit that God has graciously saved us through the cross of Christ. I call it wonderful because joy engages our emotions. We are, are thrilled to know that Jesus has sought us out and saved us. We are thrilled. That's wonderful. Right? That is a wonderful thing. So it's a conviction because it's a gift of God wrought in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. And it's wonderful because it should thrill us. Joy is the wonderful conviction that God has graciously saved you through the cross of Christ. The purpose of the promise of the gospel is joy. Now, that takes us to the last question, the application question, if you will. Third, how can we have joy? Now, I want to repeat what I just said. Joy is a gift from the Lord, right? If, if joy is the wonderful conviction that God has graciously saved you through the cross of Christ, that conviction must come from God. So joy is a gift of God. So I agree with John Piper, who preaches this in about every sermon. In the end, it will be God that delivers a person from the captivity of the devil's deceit and opens his eyes to see the superior worth of Christ Jesus. Then, when God grants repentance, he will prize Christ above all treasures and savor him above all pleasures. That is a gift, end quote. Joy is a gift from the Lord. So therefore, we should pray and pray and pray and pray that God would lead us to rejoice in Christ, that God would lead us to the wonderful conviction 
that we have been saved graciously through the cross of Christ. Now, but I recognize that there may be non-Christians who really don't know where to start. Like, I'm talking a lot about Christian joy and conviction, and you're wondering, are people going to jail? Like, who's getting convicted? You know, what's going on? Uh, you know, this joy thing. You don't look all that happy. The pastor makes a joke. You don't laugh. I'm not seeing joy. So I recognize the lack of laughter is, is, is my fault. Uh, but I, I recognize that if you're here, seriously, as an unbeliever, you just don't know where to start. You know, like, Aaron, if joy is a gift from the Lord, I just don't even know where to begin. You know, I don't want to go through life unhappy. But you're saying joy is the joyful conviction that God has graciously saved me through the work of Christ. And Aaron, I, well, I don't believe all that. And so I just don't know. I don't know where to start. And I want to be sensitive to that. I also want to recognize that there are Christians who feel guilty when told to rejoice, be it by a preacher or by an author or even by God himself. There are many, many Christians who struggle to experience the joy they think they should feel. When they read Psalm 32, 11, shout for joy. Psalm 37, 4, delight yourself in the Lord. Philippians 4, 4, rejoice in the Lord always. They hear that and they walk away with a sense of guilt because they aren't the factories of heartfelt praise they think the Bible would have them to be. Does that make sense? So there are people, there are Christians walking around wondering, hey, where's the joy? Right, so I think maybe 20 years ago, the vineyard movement was very popular. You know, uh, John Wimber said, where's the stuff? You know, where's the spiritual gifts? You know, where's the people speaking in tongues? Where's the miracles? Where, where's the stuff? I think 25 years later, there's been a revival of biblical theology in the church today. There's been a great emphasis on the fact that we're to be satisfied in God. And I think there's a growing number of Christians saying, where's the joy? <laughs> you know, where's the joy? You can preach at me really loudly, but that doesn't make me happy. You know, where's the joy? And I want to address that today. And if, if that's you, I, I want to encourage you, even though joy is a gift to pray for, there are marks of joyful Christian discipleship we are called to pursue. Let me say that again. Even though joy is a gift to pray for, there are marks of joyful Christian discipleship we're called to pursue. So if you can track with me, I'm a little bit hesitant to say we should fight for joy. Uh, it's not that I think it's untrue, but as I'm going to talk about, I think we should fight for the Lord, fight for a greater knowledge of the Lord, and joy is going to come. But there are marks of joyful Christian discipleship that I think we're to pursue. And if you are a Christian, if if fundamentally you have the joy, because once you have it, it can never be taken away. I think as you pursue these marks of joyful Christian discipleship, you will see better, experience more deeply, recognize more purely the joy that God has already given you. If you're a Christian, no one can take your joy away, but I do believe that it is possible for a season to neglect it. I think it's possible for a season to treat that, that joy like an antique that your grandmother gave you and you put in the attic. You know, if you don't polish that antique every day, it's going to get dusty and hard to recognize. And I, I think that we can treat joy like that. And so I'm just asking the question with all of that, how can we have joy? I'm going to limit myself to five answers. I share them with the prayer that your joy may be full. All right, so first, not everything that could be said, by the way, in answer to this question, but five things. First, how can you have joy? Place your faith, place your faith in the sin-conquering, death-defying work of Jesus Christ. First, so this is the most important thing. So after this point, you're just free to go, right? This is the most important thing. First, place your faith in the sin-conquering, death-defying work of Jesus Christ. This application is for believers and unbelievers alike. You will never have the wonderful conviction that God has graciously saved you through the cross of Christ unless you believe that God has graciously saved you through the cross of Christ. 
You're never going to have the joy that the Bible presents unless you believe what the Bible teaches. The Bible presents Jesus as a Savior of sinners. Until you believe that Jesus is not just a Savior of sinners in the abstract, but Jesus is the one who came to save sinners like you. Until you put your faith in him, you will never have the kind of joy that the Bible so wonderfully presents. You must believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins. You must believe that he rose from the dead for your salvation. You must believe that he is the King of kings and that he is the Lord of lords, that he will return one day to judge the living and the dead. You must believe that he is Emmanuel, God in the flesh. You must believe he is the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world and not just of the world, but your sins in order to have joy. Place your faith in the sin-conquering, death-defying work of Jesus Christ. Now, I start here because, as I've already said, we don't find joy by looking for joy. We find joy by believing in Jesus. You don't find joy by trying to recreate an emotional experience you had yesterday. You find joy by trusting the Savior every day. If I want a happy marriage, I don't pursue happiness. I pursue my wife. If you want joy, don't pursue joy. Pursue Christ, right? That's the first thing, the most important thing. I don't know everyone who's here. You may be here and not be a Christian. So I urge you, I plead with you, put your faith in Jesus Christ. Trust that he is who he said he is, a, sin, a, a perfect Savior who came into the world to die for sinners like you. Put your faith in him and in his death and resurrection, and you will have a joy that no one will ever be able to take away. Second, don't define joy as the absence of sorrow. Don't define joy as the absence of sorrow. I think a lot of us do that. We assume that our discouragement is a lack of joy. Look, it may be. You know, your discouragement may be a lack of joy, but it isn't necessarily. It certainly isn't by definition. One day, all sorrow will turn to joy. All sorrow will turn to joy one day. There will be no sorrow in heaven. But today, there is sorrow, and sorrow is to be expected, and your sorrow should exist with your joy. So let me show you what I mean. We should have sorrow that those we love are lost. And by the way, we should love, we should love all the lost, right? Who is your neighbor? You should love your neighbor. We should have sorrow that those we love are lost. In Romans chapter 9, verse 2, Paul writes, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers. This is a man devastated by the fact that his Jewish brothers and sisters are not in the family of God. They have rejected the gospel. And there is sorrow in the apostle's heart. You should have that kind of sorrow. It is not mutually exclusive of joy. You should have sorrow over the state of the lost and joy in a God who saves sinners. We should have sorrow when we see our sin. We should have sorrow when we see our sin. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, there's a man who has come face to face with his sin. He's grieving over it. Now, we know he's repented since Paul tells the church in 2 Corinthians 2, 7 to turn, to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. You know, turn and forgive him, comfort the brother, or else he's going to be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Well, what does that tell you? Paul doesn't mind the fact that the guy's got a little sorrow. Right, the guy has sinned against the Lord. He sinned against the church. Right? This guy should be sorrowful. It's okay to be sorrowful. There is such a thing as excessive sorrow. Right? This guy needs to recognize that this is why Jesus came. Jesus came to die for that sin. He should rejoice in that. But in the middle of rejoicing over that salvation and forgiveness, he should have some sorrow over his sin. Joy and sorrow, totally compatible. Right? We should have sorrow when the church fails. When you see churches that are not being the churches God would have them be, you should feel sorrow. Acts 20, 38, Paul has finished up speaking to the Ephesian elders. And he tells the Ephesian elders that false teachers are going to come and wreak havoc in the church. Well, the elders listened to what Paul said. 
And Luke tells us they were sorrowful. Most of all, most of all, because of the word he had spoken. Paul told them that false teachers were going to come and wreak havoc in the church. Now, they were crying because they loved Paul and Paul was leaving them. But why were they sorrowful? Most of all, because of the word Paul had spoken to them. Because Paul told them that the church was going to fail. It was going to be attacked and those attackers were going to win. This is a godly sorrow birthed out of a love for the holiness of God and the purity of the church. So, so we should be sad, sorrowful when we see churches failing to live up to the gospel. We should have sorrow in the face of illness and death. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 27, Paul talks about the illness of Epaphroditus, his beloved brother. And it appears that, that God healed Epaphroditus. And Paul says God healed Epaphroditus, at least in part, to spare Paul from sorrow after sorrow. So Jesus cried at the death of Lazarus. Paul clearly cried over the illness of Epaphroditus. So we can be full of sorrow over illness, right, and over death. We can be full of sorrow and yet still have joy over Jesus Christ. I think the, the first time that I really saw this clearly, I don't remember the year, maybe 2002, was when good friends of ours in Louisville lost a baby at, at birth, right at birth, they lost a baby. And our son's middle name is named after little Brock. And, uh, and I still remember Jeff and Krista, the way they cried and yet the way they had joy. They had sorrow and joy. And they taught me that sorrow and joy can go together, right? When illness and death strikes, you don't have to paste on a plastic smile no. no, sin has done its work and we should grieve over that. But there is joy in the knowledge that we worship a sovereign God. Joy and sorrow coming together. We should have joy, we should have sorrow when others attack us. Peter says we are to endure sorrows while suffering unjustly. Now he's referring to an employee faced with a cruel boss. And this is the cause of real sorrow. Sorrow, then, is not a sin to re be repented of, but it's a trial. When you're treated unjustly by another person, you can be sorrowful, but you should endure that sorrow. Consider it pure joy whenever you face trials of many kinds. So I'm just trying to paint a biblical picture of the preponderance of sorrow in the Christian life and say clearly you can be joyful and full of sorrow at the same time. So maybe your heart is heavy because of sin in your life, sickness in your family, or painful circumstances that are out of your control. You don't have to get rid of that sorrow to have joy. You just you need to persevere in that sorrow. In the midst of sorrow, God calls you to persist in the wonderful conviction that God has graciously saved you through the cross of Christ. Third, how can I have joy? See the gospel at work. See the gospel at work. In Acts chapter 13, Paul preaches the gospel in Antioch. He shares the gospel, and, and Jews and Gentiles come to faith in Christ. And in verse 44 of Acts 13, we're told that almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. Can you imagine that? Almost the whole city gathered together, you know, to hear the word. I mean, amazing. Gentiles are amazed that the gospel is for them too. And so in verse 29, we're told how the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. So that's a great thing. The gospel was at work in Antioch. And Luke tells us all about it. And then in verse 52, it says the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit is the giver of joy. When you are a child of God, you love to know what your father is doing. You love to see him at work. You don't just want to see sermons preached. You, you want to see lives changed. You don't just want to know. You want to know how the Spirit is at work convicting the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. So, friends, see the gospel at work if you want to have joy. Buy Operation World and pray through it. See the gospel at work. Notice what God is doing in other countries. You know, read Christian biographies. Go on a short-term missions trip and see where there's a need for the gospel. See where God is working in places other than our own place. 
join us on Sunday evenings as we try to figure out what God is doing in, in one another's lives and, and pray for that. And very practically, start asking people the question, so how is the Lord at work in your life? You know, it's a simple question. It's a very personal question, isn't it? Uh, it's a question we should be ready for, but it's wonderful to hear the answers. How is the Lord at work in your life? You know, now, if you're talking to an, an unbeliever, that's an, an odd question. I mean, they're under God's wrath, you know, so be at work bringing the gospel to bear on their circumstances. But if you're talking to a believer, how is the Lord at work in your life? And, and, and if, if they give you an answer, rejoice in it you know, because God is at work in people that you love. Ask people the question, how do you see the Lord at work in your life? Number four, press into the lives of other believers. Press into the lives of other believers. Those who rejoice in the Lord rejoice in the lives of other believers. It's all over the Bible. Philippians 1.4, Paul prays with joy because he can partner with the Philippians in gospel ministry. Philippians 2.2, I'm going to go very quickly. Philippians 2.2, Paul says his joy is made complete when the body of Christ is marked by love and humility. 1 Thessalonians 2.20, Paul says that the believers in the church are his glory and joy. He says, you are my joy. 2 Timothy 1.4, Paul is filled with joy to be able to see Timothy. Just seeing Timothy brings him joy. Philemon 7, Paul gets joy from the love of his brother in Christ. 2 John 1.12, John's joy is made complete when he comes together with the church. These are just a few examples, just a few. Joy is the wonderful conviction that God has graciously saved you through the cross of Christ. But that joy is to be experienced in the context of the church. We are called to rejoice in the Lord as we rejoice with the saints of the Lord, with the men and women and children that God has put us together with in a church family. And this means sharing life together, not primarily on Facebook or Instagram, but in the flesh as we gather week in and week out to do what only we can do, gather in the name of the Lord. So to my Christian friends who have not joined a church let me encourage you to make your joy complete by partnering in ministry with a local church. To my brothers and sisters in Christ at Mount Vernon, let me encourage you to come to an evening service so our lives can better overlap and so our joy can be made complete. And number five, keep the end in view. How can you have joy? Keep the end in view. Listen carefully to Romans chapter 15, verse 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Those who have joy, Paul says, abound in hope. Those who have joy, hope for things to come. Right? Joy in Christ and hope in Christ's coming are two sides of the same coin. You can't have the wonderful conviction that God has graciously saved you through the cross of Christ without the same conviction, without the same confidence, without the same hope that Christ will return to wipe every tear from your eyes and banish mourning and crying and pain. They go together. So please hear me. When I say we're to keep the end in view, and we're talking about joy. I don't just mean because in heaven, God is going to take the pain away. I mean because in heaven, we will see God face to face. Our joy will be full. Our joy will be complete. I love the end of C.S. Lewis's uh, Voyage of the Dawn Treader, where Lucy is just crushed to leave Narnia. She wants Aslan to know, though, that it's not because she's going to miss the sword fights and the feasts it's not because she's going to miss the magic. She wants Aslan to know it's because she's going to miss him. When she leaves Narnia for England, she's going to miss him. Aslan won't be there. She says, we shan't meet you there. And how can we live never meeting you? 
And this is the heart of a Christian. Though God is with us now, we long to be with him perfectly. And so we keep the end in view, not merely because we long for a world without sorrow and pain, but because we long to be with the one we love the most. If you want joy, keep the end in view. So I would say it's not the fact that we crave that's the problem. It's what we crave. We are all tempted to crave the wrong things. We're all tempted to gorge ourselves on cheesecake and work and exercise and attention when we should be gorging ourselves on Christ. We cannot love Christ too much. He is a spring of water welling up into eternal life. Benjamin Francis, an 18th century rural English pastor, knew sorrow. He lost his first wife and their three children. They died. He got remarried. They had 10 more children. He lost seven of them. Never pastored a big church, always pastored in the country. The church was never big enough to fully support him. We don't have any of his sermons left, but from every account, he was a godly man with joy in the Lord. And we have a letter that he wrote to a friend. And Benjamin Francis put it this way. Take this word for yourself. Place, then, your entire confidence in Christ for the whole of salvation. Let the declarations and promises of the gospel be your only warrant for believing in him. The old way of saying, don't come to Jesus simply for what he did for you, but go to Jesus for who he is. Let not your sweetest experiences, which are at best shallow cisterns, but Christ alone be the source of your comfort and constantly live upon that inexhaustible fountain. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that Jesus is for us an inexhaustible fountain. We thank you for the wonderful conviction that you have graciously saved us through the cross of Christ and that no one can take that joy away. Father, where that joy has been muddled or tarnished, hidden, we pray that you would help us to dust it off, help us to marvel daily at our Savior as we look toward the end of time when we see you face to face. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.